Hebrews 6, 4. Ready? Charge. Okay, say the reference. Okay, everybody get there. Mr. Vandor, if you keep a record, I want to see who does the best job this afternoon. Joseph gets the first, the first one, okay? Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. It is not my intention to explain to you this afternoon what that verse means. That's in the future. For those who have been following along, uh, actually we're at the beginning of chapter 5 in our study of Hebrews, but as you come to different texts, you find that there's only one interpretation, but there are many applications. And with regard to this section here, there are five marvelous privileges of having our faith in Christ that I want to discuss and think on today. Oh, this particular verse here that we've read just now is, is said by some to be one of the most controversial verses in the Bible. One commentator I read had something like 10 different interpretations for this particular passage. So we're, we're going to begin a building block today so that when we get to it, it'll be a little bit easier to get through it in one sermon, and uh, we'll have covered this base already. But the proposition I would like to present to you is that these five different things that are listed here, to be once enlightened, to taste the heavenly gift, to be made partakers of the Holy Ghost, to have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, are five characteristics or five privileges of our faith. And they're a demonstration of the fact that the writer of Hebrews here is not trying to say that these are peripheral believers who never really accepted the Lord, but shows clearly that they are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that will be one of the first steps of understanding these verses here, although at first it may look like that makes it harder to understand them. But uh, it'll get us closer to the truth. So look with me at these phrases, these phrases, these marvelous phrases. Uh, we'll address the issue of whether they refer to a believer or an unbeliever as we go through it, but we want to spend our time primarily, actually, it doesn't take much to do that. We're going, we want to spend more of our time on just meditating on these things. So as we look here, the first one is who were once enlightened, who were once enlightened. The word, therefore, enlightened is the word fotizo, which we get our word photograph from. And when we think of a photograph, we're lighting up a subject in order to be able to see it. And so when it, when it speaks of enlightening here, the dictionary definition is to have shined upon. Our God has shined upon these people. Now, when we see words like this in our Bible, it's always helpful to look at the rest of the Bible to draw our conclusions about how they're used in the Bible and what they mean. Actually, uh, it's better to do that than to go into secular papyri and other sources. Look first in the Bible where you can find these terms used. And in this particular case, we're particularly encouraged because we know the writer of Hebrews used the same word in another place. 
And so are you ready for this sword drill? Bible's in the air. Hebrews 10.32. Whoa, 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 whoa. Keep those Bibles up. I haven't said ready, charge you. Hebrews 10.32. 10, ready? Charge. Okay, right here. Mr. Barrows, did you have it? Okay, but call to remembrance, Hebrews 10.32, but call to remembrance the former days in which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. The word for illuminated is our same word as the word enlightened. And if you look at the context just of the verse, let alone the other verses around it, it clearly refers to a person who is saved. Also, it says, were once enlightened. That doesn't mean one, one time here and one time there. That means once and for all, specifically in the lexicon of these words, these Greek words, that word in particular means once and for all. So it's not like a person who can come and taste the things or participate in things and then come be enlightened, okay, and then come back and be enlightened another time. This is saying that you get enlightened once and once for all. And that's true because if you're saved, you're saved, and you're not going to get enlightened to be saved again. And so it's talking about the enlightenment that comes from God that is a person's salvation. And as these terms are all put together, we'll see that reinforced. But what I want to think about primarily this afternoon is the marvelous privilege for us as believers to be enlightened. To be enlightened. Uh, that word is kind of associated with some bad movements in our history of the world, the enlightenment and different things like that. But I'm using it in a biblical sense. To be enlightened. The day you read it and you believed it and you were enlightened, you came to understand the basic truths of the Christian faith and what they meant. And they meant that you were lost in a horrible sin situation that was going to lead you right down the pit to hell. And now there was a Savior who would take you to heaven. What a change of venue. You were enlightened. Do you remember that day? It's a marvelous privilege that we have. Uh, sometimes, because some of you grew up in Christian homes, you don't realize how much enlightenment that is because you didn't live amidst the wicked world that's out there. And some of us being blessed with good church family and good opportunities to fellowship with other Christians don't realize sometimes that for a person out there coming out of the world into the, the church and into Christ is a tremendous or ought to be a tremendous enlightenment. The standards, the life, the privilege, the, the uh, opportunities of the Christian faith are amazing. Direct access to God through his son, Jesus Christ. That's amazing. Meditate for a moment on the enlightenment there is in accepting the truths of this book and putting them into practice, how much it encourages us, how much it changes us. We have a high priest like they had in the Old Testament, but ours isn't down here 
cutting up sacrifices. That's over. Our high priest gave himself, and he is in heaven. And he is our priest, our intermediary. He's not somebody who confesses, uh, takes confession down here on earth and has no power to do anything about it. He is the Savior of the world that we have direct contact to God through. Uh, he had common experiences like us. He's, he's not a, a God figure that never knew what it was like to live on this earth. He is one who uh, ushers us to the throne of grace. We take that for granted. These people, he's addressing this letter, remember, to Jews before the temple was destroyed who were seeing the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and types all of a sudden fulfilled in Christ. I mean, I think that's exciting when I see it just in the Scriptures reading them, let alone to have seen it before my very eyes. What a tremendous, what a tremendous privilege our faith is in that we are enlightened and, and have access to this information that, that tells us what's really going on in the world and how we should deal with it. Secondly, there are those who have tasted of the heavenly gifts. Now, the word tasted suggests the idea of, when we think of it in our English language, of taking a bite and seeing if we like it or not, right? And so I suppose a lot of people who look at this in the English language think that way. But that doesn't work. If you look at how this word is used throughout the Bible, you find out that it doesn't mean just a tasting of something, thereby justifying the idea that these were, were professing believers and not true believers. They tasted it, but they didn't really take it, didn't really eat it. Acts chapter 10, verse 10 is the first place we'll look at, so get your Bibles up in the air. Acts 10, 10. Ready? Charge. When you get there, say the reference. I'll read it. Save time. Acts 10.10, 10. 10, Mr. Densmore. And he became very hungry. This is Peter having to do with the animals and the sheep let down from heaven. And he became very hungry and would have eaten, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance. Eaten there is our same word taste. Same word taste. It's not the idea of just taking a little bite and eating no more. It's the idea in the Bible of the full experience, but emphasizing the experience over the event. In other words, if I say I eat something, I think of the mechanical act of eating and the nourishment it provides. But if I say taste something, it means I'm thinking about how I react to it with my, my flavor buds, okay? whether it tastes good or not, regardless of whether it's good for me or not. <laughs> Danielle looked at me kind of funny in line today because my wife said, Virgil William! You know, I got one of those chocolate wafer things, and I didn't get away with it because I had it in one hand behind my back, and she asked me to tear things to the table that required two hands, and so I was stuck, <laughs> and I got caught. Uh, I wanted to taste it. Well, I really wouldn't do more than that. I did. But, but the idea here is to uh, the experience of it. A little closer to home in the book of Hebrews now, okay? Get your Bibles ready. Hebrews 2, 9. 
Ready, charge. Elijah, here we are. Listen as I read. Continue turning there. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Did Jesus just kind of start to die and not really get dead? No. He died on that cross. But the emphasis of using this uh, euphemism, or we might call it a metaphor probably, is, is, is trying to convey to you the experience of Jesus on the cross. He felt it. It wasn't just a mechanical act that he did. He felt it. He tasted the death, not that he just took a bite. It was the full. So emphasis on the, on the full experience. Well, what, what have we tasted? We have tasted the heavenly gift. What is the heavenly gift? Bible's up. John 6:32. Ready, charge. Ooh, that was close. Who is the one over here? Okay, and who is over here? We'll make them both winners, Bruce and Bruce raised his hand. Yeah, he said the same time she did. So we'll put them both down. Okay, Hebrew, or John 6, 32. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong place. Let me back up a minute. Uh, what was the verse I gave you? Oh, that's it, okay. But the Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. So Jesus is making a metaphor here where they have bread to eat, which meets temporal needs, but Jesus is the bread that meets eternal needs, and he's a gift. My Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. In other words, Jesus Christ was the Father's gift to the world. Salvation is God's gift to the world. Uh, let's look at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. If you can quote it, just stand up and quote it. Okay, here we go. Go ahead, Joseph. Stand up and quote it. Now, if you're around me very long, especially if you're learning anything in theology or you've got to be ordained, my question for you is, what is the gift of God in that text? I'm going to find out if you're Reformed or not. Salvation. Huh? Salvation. Salvation, that's right, thank you. Faith is not the gift. You have to exercise the faith. The gift is salvation. Faith comes before salvation, not salvation before faith. Faith becomes before regeneration, not regeneration before faith. He didn't say to the Philippian jailer, ask the Lord to give you faith and you'll be saved. He said to the Philippian jailer, believe and thou shalt be saved, right? The faith is our responsibility, okay? But anyway, that's not. The point is, salvation is the gift, the heavenly gift is salvation. 
That's an amazing thing. It's a heavenly, you ever have, you know, I'm sure you all had somebody give you something. It's kind of exciting to get a gift all wrapped up in a nice package. And you open it up and wonder what it is, what's all going to carry through. That's what God gave when he gave his son. You know, when he came, those who, even those who were his followers didn't fully understand what a tremendous gift they were being given from heaven. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. One commentator said they are saved people who had a real conscious enjoyment of the blessings of grasping this gift and its true nature. They have possession of real spiritual life. A gift from heaven, salvation. There's no other way you can get it. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. All you can do is say, Lord, I depend upon you. You offer it to me. I accept it. I believe you. I believe you. And it makes all the difference in the world when we realize that our salvation is a gift. You can make up your mind to do all kinds of things in your life, but you won't get saved unless you accept salvation as a gift. Are you subconsciously working real hard to try to please God for some reason? That's good, but only after you've received the gift, the heavenly gift of salvation. How highly do you value the things that are given to you? As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that she may grow thereby. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Tasted that the Lord is gracious. They experienced that. As they came out of Judaism and became associated with, instead of a big pageantry temple system, a little group of people that met on the porch of the temple or in somebody's house. And the, the, the bond of fellowship with other believers, the bond of fellowship with the Lord, tremendous heavenly gift. I uh, had 10 children, and one of my great joys in that was that my wife nursed all those kids, and she's still alive. Uh, by the way they went at it, sometimes you weren't sure she would be, but they're all still alive. And it was really a great thing because I didn't have to get up in the middle of the night and make a bottle for them. I just rolled over, if that, and uh, it was taken care of. My wife tells me one night I was sitting up in bed with my arms like this, patting my chest to, to get the baby to rest so she could take care of him. <laughs> the eagerness, the eagerness of understanding the gift from heaven like a newborn babe who desires that milk, who desires that milk. Okay, Bible's ready. John 4, 10. Ready? Charge. Okay, who were the two back there? I wasn't looking. Okay. Holl out your names. I haven't got them all right yet. Okay. Jed? Okay. And was it your sister? What's your name? Jesse. They all start with J, don't they? If I remember right. 
Jed and Jesse, okay? Here's the verse. Jesus answered and said unto her, this is the woman at the well, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Living water. Living water pictures a stream of water moving along, sparkling, pure, clean, beautiful. It goes on and on and on and on and on. flows all the time. It's not a wadi, it's a river. He would have given thee living water. A flow of a river through you of the Holy Spirit, like a stream flows through a mountainside. Thirdly, we are made, we were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Now, for me to say this is an, an aorist verb probably doesn't mean much to any of you except Joseph. <laughs> uh, but an aorist verb translated into English, does, it, first of all, aorist doesn't mean anything except something happened, okay? So it's usually translated just a simple past, test, past tense. So uh, you were made partakers. It's an event that happened in your life in the past. And uh, it is a, a word partaker here that is also used elsewhere in the book of Hebrews. In fact, we find it about four other times or so in the book of Hebrews. Let's try this one. Bible's up in the air again. Hebrews 2.14. Ready? Charge. He got it up here. How follow along. Hebrews 2:14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Now, partakers of flesh and blood. Here's our word. These is referring to saved people. Say he also himself likewise took part. Jesus took on full humanity. He partook of flesh and blood. He was fully human, not just for, for a, like a theophany where he came down for a short time and went back and wasn't really a human being. He was 100% human being and 100% God at the same time. Okay, Bible's up. Now close them. You've got to start over again. Ready? Okay. Hebrews 3.1. Ready? Charge. <laughs> Holler out your name. Ben. And who is over here? Elijah. Okay. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Partakers of the heavenly calling. Fully, they fully participated and became a part of the heavenly calling. We won't take time to sword drill these, but Hebrews 3.14 for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast until the end. Hebrews 12, 8. 
But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. It's talking there about being fully disciplined. It always emphasizes real participation. Commentator writes, these are not people who only came close to seeing the Holy Spirit work. They were real participants in the Holy Spirit. They had a vital relationship with the Holy Spirit. It was a kind of relationship that comes from being indwelt. I'm not sure what all the implications are in the Bible between how the Holy Spirit uh, worked in the lives of believers in the Old Testament versus the New Testament, but this I do know. The privileges of living in the New Testament times were far superior to the, the privilege of living in the Old Testament time. And that had to do in large part because the Holy Spirit's ministry was much more available to our Christians, to our church, although it was available to the Old Testament saints as well, but in a double sort of way to us today. The Holy Spirit of God indwells you. Think for a moment all that the Israelites had to go through in order to be able to get that pillar of fire and smoke to come down and sit in the temple or the tabernacle. They had to build a special place. They had to mark it off. Then they had to go in and clean it, build special furniture for it in exactly the way they were told to build it. Then they had to make sacrifices, many, many sacrifices, and take the blood and spread it around on those various uh, utensils and places where they worship in order for God to come down and just be among them in that tabernacle or that temple. And now that God lives in you as a believer. Partaker of the Holy Ghost. That's a big deal. Are you appropriating the power of the Holy Spirit? Before you... <laughs> my wife says, did you pray about that? If you didn't pray about something you're trying to decide to do, then you're not using the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, have you tried to do anything out of your... It's expression, outside your box the area of your comfort, your comfort zone? Have you tried to do anything outside your comfort zone, outside your box, and not done it, and yet not asked the Holy Spirit if that's what he wanted? Or maybe the Holy Spirit had urged you along and you felt that little urging inside, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. And you, and you need to step out, not on confidence of yourself, but in confidence of him, that if you step out of your box, he'll, he'll carry you on through. What a marvelous, what a marvelous opportunity to have access to the Holy Spirit as if he were here walking beside you, guiding you, encouraging you. But yet so many times we quench the Spirit. We don't even quench it. We grieve the Spirit because we never get around to quenching him. And that means that we grieve him because we don't even ask him. And do it. And then when he asks us, we don't obey him. That, that's the first one. The first one is grieving. The second one is quenching. 
just uh, like if you put out a fire with a massive amount of water, just it's gone. You know, you can do that to the Holy Spirit. He's God, but he will not force himself up on you. He will wait for you to take a step of faith. And then he'll come along and carry you through. He will not force you. He's waiting for you to come to him. Number four. I'm getting the pages right here. Number four. Those who have tasted the good word of God. Uh, before we look up a verse there, I want to talk to you a little bit about something that uh, we sometimes miss in our Bible study. You, you need to think about your Bible like pastors trying to get us to do this morning. Dates and time are important. Uh, a lot of times the whole application comes through when you understand the time frames. For example, in this case, when was the book of Hebrews probably written? Do any of you work with study Bibles? And maybe you have it in the introduction to your study Bible right now. You could look and tell me what your Bible says. What's it say? Pardon? 64 AD. Anybody else say a different one? Okay, 64. Mine said 68. Okay. Yes. 70 AD. Okay, that's a little late. But 64 and 68, I'll work within that time frame. Now, if you were... How can I ask this? Sixty-eight. What's thirty from sixty-eight? Thirty-eight, right? If you were over thirty-eight, probably forty-eight years, forty-eight or fifty-eight years old, what is the implication of that? Say, let's say you were fifty-eight years old, and you subtract thirty-eight from that. That means you were twenty, thirty years ago. What's the significance of that? What year would it have been? If he wrote this book in 38 A.D., and if you were, go ahead. Yeah. That person would have been 20 years old when Christ was crucified. That means that some of the people that he was ministering to in the book of Hebrews had seen Jesus, had seen the people he'd healed, still could see them, had heard about Jesus, Maybe he had even heard him preach. It says here, have tasted the good word of God. There's two words in particular in the Greek language which are translated word. One is rhema and the other is logos. Logos is a, a spoken word in a sense, but the emphasis in logos is more on the idea, the, the big picture, the word, the philosophical concept. Rhema is more the idea of a smallest division of language, like a short, pithy saying, or a short sermonette, or an anecdote. And so that's the idea of the word here. It says, have tasted the good word of God. Some of these people maybe heard Jesus preach, and his words were good. On the other hand, Bible's up. 
First Peter one twenty three. Ready, charge. Robert Densmore. First Peter one twenty three. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The word of God. Incorruptible. We said this morning it's inspired, inerrant, infallible, and preserved. That means it's incorruptible. Add to all that the power of the Holy Spirit that in, aids us in interpreting it. It can't be spoiled. I remember a number of years ago, a particular young man wrote a book that sweeped across America among homeschoolers uh, on courtship, I think. I won't go into the details of the person, but he, it became a very popular book and everybody bought it. Today, that guy is apostate. His word was corruptible. His life turned out to be corruptible. But not this book. Not this book. This book's been around a long time, and nobody has been able to discredit it. People have tried to destroy it. They've tried to call it a lie. They've tried to prove it wrong historically, and no one has ever done it. It's still here, and they're all gone. It's the incorruptible Word of God. It is the good Word of God. It will only bring you good if you study it and understand it the way God wants you to understand it. It's a good book, and that's not going to change. You don't have to worry about sometime down the road when they quit publishing because it's not popular anymore. They may quit publishing in this place because they won't let them publish it anymore, but somebody else will publish it somewhere else. And nobody's going to ever discredit it. All the arguments have been tried. All the evidence has been presented. And they're gone, and it's still here. It is the good word of God. They tasted. They experienced the good word of God. So whether the good word of God came to them, word, rhema, speaking of somebody, speaking, conversational, whether it came to them by virtue of having actually heard Jesus or whether it came to them like it comes to us through the written word of God. And by the way, we have a lot more of it now than they did then because the canon wasn't finished then. What a marvelous privilege to have tasted the good word of God. If Bible study doesn't taste good with you, it's not because there's something wrong with the Bible because it has been a marvelous source of inspiration for millennia. You better look again. Do you take the word of God for granted? Do you realize really what power this book has? If you use it, study it, learn it, apply it. Number five, those who have tasted the powers of the world to come. Taste it gets in here a lot, doesn't it? 
it's no wonder people maybe came to wrong conclusion about these people, okay, who have tasted the powers of the world to come. In order to demonstrate this to you, I'd like you to turn back to Isaiah chapter 35. Well, let's do a sword drill again. This will be probably the last one, so put your Bibles up in the air. Isaiah 35, 1. I better get a head start here. Ready? Charge! Good. Was that Lincoln? Okay. I'm going to read this chapter. Listen. This chapter is talking about how, how you recognize the Messiah when he comes. Powers of the world to come. The world to come here is a reference to the millennial kingdom. That's the world to come. And the power of the world to come is the power of the Savior who will become the righteous, holy king of that kingdom. And the Bible is telling us in Isaiah chapter 35, Isaiah is saying, this is how you're going to know who he is. He'll have the powers of the kingdom. Here are the powers of the kingdom. Listen. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as a rose. Now, that's not today's Israel. That's the big desert to the east of the east, right, to the east of the, of the Jordan. That's a big desert. It's such a big, bad desert that in ancient times, Nebuchadnezzar would not cross that desert because it's too hard on his troops. He'd go around the Crescent Valley up around to the north and come in from the north rather than coming across the desert. The only time he ever went across the desert is when his father died unexpectedly and he had to rush home so he didn't lose the kingdom. And that time he took part of his soldiers and went across the desert. That's what it's talking about here when it says it shall bloom. It's not, it's, what you're seeing today in Israel is a forehanger of that, but it's not this. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even joy even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Strengthen thee the weak hands and conform, confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame leap as an heart and the tongue of the dumb sing, for in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. And the parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water in the habitation of dragons where each lay shall be grass and reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be built there and a way, and it shall be called the way of righteousness or holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, though fools shall not err therein. No lion shall be there. Not any ravenous bird shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy, Upon their heads they shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sign shall flee away. They tasted of the good, they tasted of the uh, 
of the world to come. The, the powers. Of, the, the word there for powers is the word dunamis, which we get our word dynamite from. It, it was a talk of miraculous powers. Did you ever think about this? During the tribulation, people, a lot of people aren't going to be killed, but they're going to be severely hurt. They're going to suffer under the Antichrist badly, and many of them will be martyred, but there's going to be a lot of people come out of there crippled too. You think they're going to go into the millennial kingdom crippled? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Everybody's going to go into the millennial kingdom whole. And they had, they had, they had either seen Jesus or through the testimony, if you look at chapter 2, and we don't have time to do that, they had either seen Jesus or the people who saw Jesus. And they had experienced through that, they had tasted of the power of the word to come, which was exhibited by Christ in his walk on this earth as he demonstrated that he was the Messiah that would bring Israel into the millennial kingdom. The powers of the world to come. Not only that, but there were a lot of people around them that were whole who wouldn't have been whole if Jesus hadn't come. And they attended as, continued as a testimony to who he was because of their having been healed by him during his life and still alive at this time. Tasted of the powers of the world to come. Have you meditated on what it's going to be like for you in the world to come? I mean, have you really thought about what you're going to be doing on the day of the rapture? Can you tell me what you're going to be doing on the day of the rapture? The Bible tells us so you can know. Do you know what's going to happen the day after the rapture or very shortly after the rapture? Where are you going to be? What are you going to be doing? What are you going to be doing when the kingdom comes? How will you spend your days? The Bible tells you all those things. Number one, do you, do, you know, do you really know your Bible well enough to know the answer? And number two, if you know the answer, have you ever meditated on it personally, asking yourself, how does this impact me? And how can I live now to make a difference then? Oh, there's a lot you can do now to make a difference then. A lot you can do now. Have you meditated on what the future holds for you in terms of the powers of the world to come when Jesus reigns on earth? Well, I go back to Hebrews. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. Forget the rest of the verse. We're not dealing with that right now. Just think about these. You need to comprehend the meaning of these in your own life right now before you understand the rest of the verse. And we'll come to that in a few weeks. Amazing thoughts here. I think now if you have listened closely, and it looks like most of you have, from my standpoint, what I could see up here, and you go back and take these verses at home and meditate on them, you'll be able to recall what we said about 
Just look at your Bible. Just read, read the lines. Maybe you should do that today or tomorrow and set it in your mind a little bit before maybe it starts to slip away from you. And meditate on these things which are ours because we put our faith in Christ. And it will make a difference in your life. Father in heaven, thank you for these five characteristics, these five tremendous blessings. Use them to speak to us today, to serve you more, to understand how privileged indeed we are. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.